In times long gone, in days of yore, there are legends and tales of dark folklore. Round candlelight and fireside, the tales are shared. Enchanting dark secrets in hushed tones declared. And from those days, both present and past, we beseech you now to brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Sleepless tales commence, fellow travelers. I'm your guide, David Cummings. Something dramatic happened this week. I was sitting in my living room watching a documentary about farming when someone began banging loudly on my front door. I went and answered it, and my arch-nemesis multiversal time witch Joanna fell across the threshold, collapsing onto the floor. I can't say much. She's in a bad way. She's currently resting in my guest room in the basement. But what I can tell you is this. Someone, something, has stripped her power from her. From what I can understand, this is an unfathomably painful process for a witch. When I asked her who did it, all she could mutter was a single name. The Goat. Now, sleepless friends, I can't help but feel this relates to the exciting event happening this episode. The No Sleep Podcast is proud to present Episode 1 of Goat Valley Campgrounds, a 10-part horror audio drama from author Bonnie Quinn, adapted from her massively popular How to Survive Camping series. Goat Valley Campgrounds follows Kate, a young woman who's taken over the management of the campgrounds from her parents. It's a rather substantial task. Why? Well, you'll have to listen to find out. For the traditional feed, each episode is featured at the end of the regular No Sleep Podcast episode, and will be released weekly, starting episode 14 and concluding in episode 23. For Season Pass 17 holders, the Goat Valley Campgrounds episodes will be appearing as separate weekly entries in your feed. All of the Goat Valley content will be available to everyone, whether the traditional or Season Pass feeds. You're going to want to join us for this camping trip. It's the largest and most ambitious audio drama project we've embarked on to date, and we can't be more thrilled to be working with Bonnie on creating content in the Goat Valley universe. And so, pitch your tent and get the campfire going. It's time to start this week's show. In our first tale we join a 17-year-old girl on her way to meet her grandmother for the first time. It's unusual not to have met such a close relative in that amount of time, but surely there's a reason. And in this tale, shared with us by author Maya O, 
Even if there is cause for the delay, we must only speak of it in extremely hushed tones. Performing this tale are Nicole Goodnight and Nicole Doolin. So keep the volume as low as possible. Grandma is asleep and we don't want to wake her. So stop being so noisy. Please be quiet. My mom whispered as we crept through the front door. You have to be quiet. Your grandmother is asleep in the attic. Why is she being so dramatic? I thought to myself. Why did you wait 17 years to tell me I had a grandmother who lived in a creepy old backwoods house? My mother shushed me, hurriedly ushering me through the house and into the basement. If the surprise road trip to a surprise house with a surprise grandmother was a strange start to my day, the basement just piled on the weird. Beige, padded cloth walls, thick red carpet, giant soft couches supporting a mountain of pillows and clashing prints. Mom, this place looks like if a porn set from the 70s had terrible taste. How do you know what a porn set from the 70s looks like? I rolled my eyes at her. Sometimes I think she believes the internet is a figment of my imagination. This room is soundproof to prevent us from disturbing and waking up your grandmother. Uh, About that, why didn't I know I still had a grandmother? I thought she was dead. Are there any other family members you're hiding out in the boonies? Your grandma. She's special. She's not from here. She was a young orphan ferried over from a world away. No name, no money... And no memory. Her life was really hard growing up. This country can be unforgiving to anyone they see as different. Hearing that, there was a twinge of empathy for my grandmother. I've always felt different my entire life, and people were cruel. But then she met your grandfather, and it was love at first sight for them both. They got married very young, and had me really early. My mother smiled wistfully. We three mostly just had each other this far out. But it was a great childhood. Constantly outdoors, helping Mom grow food or helping Dad maintain the house. I had hope for the same when I had you. It didn't skip my notice that my mother had used Mom and Dad to refer to my grandparents for the first time. Once I moved to the city, I didn't visit as much as before, so I never realized. Your grandmother got sicker the older she got. Started to lose her sight and smell. Had to take long naps. It was a strain on your grandfather, but he insisted on taking care of her himself. Making me promise to do the same if he died first. So, on the weekends, when you are with your dad, I come over. Clear up the weeds, stock some food, do the laundry. And now that you're old enough, I have you to help me. You still haven't explained why you never told me about her. No, I didn't. How about we stop at that diner you like on the way home and I tell you the rest over pancakes and bacon. For now, just be really quiet as you walk through the house and stay on the ground floor. You can work outside weeding the garden while I finish up the laundry here. She tossed me a pair of gardening gloves, shooing me away. Maybe if I wasn't such a curious, stubborn brat, things would have gone very differently that day. But a secret grandmother... 
How many people would be capable of sauntering off to yank some weeds with a mystery like that left unsolved? Determined to meet her, I headed up to the attic. For an old house, nothing creaked. Climbing the stairs was silent, the carpet dampening my footfalls. As I stood in the entryway to the attic, I struggled to get a clear look at the sleeping form on the bed, the hazy light weakening quickly with the setting sun. Screw it, I thought. Grandma? She didn't move. I took a step forward. Grandma! At first, nothing stirred. Then the whisper of sheets being slid from a body. A creak of joints as the figure on the bed sat up straight, head swiveling side to side in the deepening shadows. A harsh groan escaped her as her feet touched the floor, followed by a raspy throttle as my grandmother hunched over on all fours. Her bones cracked and bent and warped, each arm and each leg at opposite angles to each other, while her head gradually began twisting around to find the source of the noise. With each jerking twist of her head, I felt myself shrink deeper and deeper into myself, praying she didn't see me, praying that I could be quiet enough to be invisible. When her head had turned completely around, her eyes locked onto mine. No flicker of humanity shone in those primal depths. They were deeper and darker than the infinite night sky. I didn't scream. I didn't cry. I barely breathed. She inched spasmodically towards me, the direction of the last sound she had heard. Closer and closer. I didn't feel the trickle of urine run down my leg. Closer and closer. A scream started crawling up in the back of my throat. Closer and closer. Then she was close enough to smell. Wet, putrid earth underlaid by hints of lavender, mixed with the coppery tang of fetid blood. I nearly broke, but was saved by a loud bang from outside. A hunter's gunshot, perhaps, or a car backfiring on a distant road. It jolted my grandmother to action. She opened her mouth in a silent shriek, almost like the sound had physically hurt her in some way, and bolted to the window, shattering the glass as she jumped through it in pursuit of the source of the noise. It felt like an eternity before I could force myself to move again. When my limbs finally worked, I ran to the basement, hurtling into my mother's arms and sobbing uncontrollably. She held and soothed me like I was five, not seventeen, rocking me in her arms until I had quieted. I told her what happened. I told her how sorry I was I didn't listen to her, that that I thought I knew better. It's okay, little lamb. Do you think I wasn't an obnoxious teenager at one point, too? The same thing happened to me when I first came back home. But luckily, your grandfather was around to befuddle her senses. She wouldn't really hurt Kinney told me then. But he also sounded very uncertain when he said it. However, your grandpa did teach me how to track her and put her back to sleep. And now it's your turn to learn. It'll be hard. She has a really big head start. So we better get hunting. Mom told me this was our family secret. Our family curse. And not to tell a soul. But I'm disobeying her again to tell the story. To warn everyone. Whoever you are. Wherever you are. Please be quiet. My grandmother is awake. And I don't know where she is.
Many neighborhoods have that one house. You know the type I mean. It stands out and not in a good way. It's filthy. Maybe a window or two is boarded up. The yard is littered with rusted car parts or broken children's toys. It's an eyesore. And in this tale, shared with us by author Peter J. Stewart, we meet a man whose address means he's forced to see the ramshackle old building every single day. Performing this tale is Guy Woodward. So it's time to enter nightmare mode as we go check out the horrible house across the street. It is getting late after all. The time is 2112. Whenever you read stories about haunted houses, they're always at the end of a creepy lane or hidden away in the middle of some long-forgotten forest. However, that isn't always the case. You see, I grew up living right next door to a haunted house, but it wasn't in a fantastical location. No, it was tucked away on an unassuming street on the west side of Glasgow. To any passerby, it just looked a little bit run down, but to me, it was something more. The house he sat on a corner, it was on the end of Kirtland Street at number 21, and the haunted house was number 12 Melbury Avenue. Everything about the houses was mirror opposites. Theirs was a clean, sparkling beige. Theirs was a dirty brownish green colour. Their garden was pristine and neat. Theirs was strewn with old toys, overgrown plants, and a trampoline that looked as if you would need a tetanus jab just for looking at it too long. My parents said it looked like that because it was abandoned. But I knew that was a lie. When I was five years old, I saw someone peeking out from behind the blinds in the upper window at the back of the house. My mum said I was just imagining it, but my dad went round to check anyway and didn't see anything. They both said it was probably just a trick of the light or something like that. But I know what I saw. A shadowy face with eyes full of fear glimmering in the streetlight. Every day on my way to and from school, I used to run past the front of number 12. I was afraid that if I lingered too long, whatever lay within its walls would reach out and grab me, gobbling me up for daring to cross its path. Still to this day, I don't think I ever quite lost that habit. Even as an adult, long after I'd inherited the house from my parents, I would always quicken my step as I passed by the front of number 12. Over the years, I noticed something else that didn't sit right with me about the house next door. It was always a mess, but it was never more or less of a mess, if that makes sense. Occasionally, I would clean the leaves out of their garden, purely a self-preservation for my own as they frequently blew over to ours. The strange thing was, the very next day the leaves would be back in their garden, organised in a very similar pattern. I would check my waste bin to see if the leaves I gathered were still there, and they always were. For another example, I would pick up the discarded junk that lay in the garden, and the next day there would be more. My wife would tell me that it was probably just new junk, or leaves that blew down from another tree. There were slight differences I would concede, but the rubbish would always be in the same place, even if it was made up of different things. It was like it was snapping back to its original state, but was unable to replicate itself exactly. I became obsessed with this thought, that the house was somehow keeping itself in that state on purpose. I would say I was going out to do some gardening, but at some point would always just end up staring across at the neighbour's house. It felt as if it was mocking me, as though it could see me looking at it 
and it felt like everywhere I went it was rattling around in my head. I tried to track down a previous owner and find out if the house was ever intended to be sold but was never given a straight answer. Someone at the council mentioned that at one point the house had been condemned but for some reason no action was ever taken. They promised me they would look into it but when I called back a few months later after nothing had happened they said they had no record of me calling in the first place. That was the final straw. I needed something to happen. It felt like until that house was gone I would never be able to get home with living. So I decided to force the matter. I thought if I smashed it up a bit then the council would have to do something. Even if just to protect the surrounding houses. So, in the middle of the night I dug out one of my dad's old golf clubs and snuck around to the house. I was sure if I smashed one of the living room windows one of the neighbours would surely call the police and if by some stroke of luck I wasn't caught and arrested it would hopefully get the council's attention. Standing in front of the house I lifted the club above my head and swung it as hard as I could against the window. But nothing happened. The club just bounced off without so much as leaving a scratch. I swung again and again but still nothing happened. Looking around I expected to see some lights coming from the surrounding houses as people looked out to see what was causing all the commotion but no one stirred. I took one last swing of the club and poured all my frustration into it willing it to finally break the glass but instead the club snapped and sent half itself flying away only to be lodged in one of the overgrown bushes. I screamed throwing the handle away before turning the front door and kicking out. Much to my surprise I was just about to connect with it when the door casually lurched away just ahead of my foot causing me to fall forward into my first and only attempt to turn the splits. Pulling myself to my feet I dusted the wet leaves from the path off my trousers and looked at the open door. No one was there. No one held the door open or looked confused by my attack on their house. It was just an empty hallway. But I got the sense it was calling me in. Taking a deep breath I cautiously made my way inside. I half expected the door to slam shut behind me the way you see in horror films but it just lay open looking almost as if it was being held to the wall. Tried to switch on the light but it obviously didn't work so I took out my phone and turned on the torch to look around. It had almost the same layout as my house. The only difference was it was inverted. That wasn't anything too odd. It was to be expected from these old council houses but unlike my house everything in this hallway was covered in a thick layer of dust. Out of habit I reached down to run my finger along the top of the sideboard that sat halfway along the corridor but just before I touched it the dust moved away ahead of my finger. Pulled my hand away quickly and stepped back. Only to notice that when I did I stepped into a footprint in the dust that perfectly matched my own. At first I thought I'd step back into the footprint I'd made when coming into the house but as I looked around I saw that wasn't the case. It was as if the dust in the floor expected me to step into it and had moved out of the way. I stood still for a moment my heart jittering in my chest as I thought about turning and running. But as I did so, footprints appeared in a running motion leading away from me and out the door. I saw the leaves in the past squashed down as if being stepped on and the gate at the end shook as if something brushed by it on the way past. Before I had time to think, another set of footprints turned away from mine and walked further into the house. The rational part of my brain began to splinter and crack as I tried to make sense of what befell me. One set of steps forward into the unknown and the other a return to safety. The steps played out like choices I could take but I knew I couldn't go back. Not after all these years of wondering. I needed to push on. Turning away from the door 
I stepped forward into the pre-step footprint ahead of me, and as I did so, the door behind me seemed to unmoor itself from the wall and drift slowly shut. I was in now, and it seemed as if there was no going back. I traced along the steps before me that led into the living room. As I opened the door, I saw footprints leading off in scattered directions around the room that led away from the door. I didn't know what to make of it. You always prefer to think you would be brave in situations like this, but I could almost hear the sound of my concepts of reality shattering at the sight. Closing my eyes, I tried to steady myself, to try and empty my mind so that I might piece it back together. It was then that a memory came to me. I was 13, feverish, and hallucinations were keeping me up at night. They weren't visual ones, they were more like burning thoughts that crept in, twisted themselves around my mind and wouldn't let go. My mum sat on the edge of my bed, gently stroking my sweat-soaked hair as she tried to settle me. She told me to try and think of a happy memory and use it to overpower the bad thoughts. The stronger the feelings in the memory, the better, she said. It was a struggle, but eventually I managed to think of a trip we went on to a theme park when I was little. The thought was of us riding roller coasters, and I focused all my limited energy into conjuring the feelings and sensations. The wind rushing through my hair, the cold metal under my fingers as I gripped the safety harness, the adrenaline followed by the sound of joyful screams and cheers. As I lay there on the bed, it felt like the roller coaster was carrying the hallucinations and bad thoughts away, and soon... I slept soundly again. The memory acted like a glue that pieced my rational brain back together. It began to settle my nerves, brought explanation for what I was seeing, and even gave me a brief comfort that this might be a dream. I knew it wasn't though, but still I began to settle. And so I opened my eyes and looked down at the ever-present footsteps. Two of the explanations I had managed to conjure were that the steps were showing me possible paths to take, or maybe that life is random and I could take any path I chose. So I chose a route, or at least I thought I did as I walked around the room, taking in the old dust-covered photos of people who I'd never seen before. I hadn't been able to find much in the previous owners, but I'd come across some old photos. However, none of the ones that hung here were the same. I looped around the outside edge of the room and made it back to the door, only afterwards realising that I had not created my own footprints. Instead, I had seemingly walked a path that someone else had walked before. Some of the footsteps now led down the corridor and into the kitchen. Others led away from the door and up the stairs. Both tracks began to give the impression of multiple people stepping on the same path, as the footsteps seemed abnormally large in some places and patterned in others. I looked back at the now closed front door and tried my best to steady myself with the thought that it was probably a mistake to have stayed. But soon I followed the steps up the stairs. Just as in our house, at the top of the stairs there was a bathroom and, to the left of it, two doors that led to the front and back bedrooms. I followed the steps into the bedroom at the back of the house and stopped in my tracks. Suddenly, it felt like I had jumped into freezing water and all the air had rushed out of my lungs. I gasped like I was clasping for the air bubbles that floated away as I drowned. The mechanics of breath had left me as I stared across at a desiccated corpse sitting in a chair in the corner. Its blank hollow eyes stared back at me standing in the doorway, looking as if it was silently waiting to hear what I had to say. Wind in my hair, cold metal under my fingers and joyful screams, I thought over and over until my breath returned. All the while, another thought became muddled in the mix about just how sad it was for someone to have been left like this for so long. I knew no matter how afraid I was, I couldn't leave them there. 
so I steeled myself and began to walk towards the chair. But as I stepped forward, an almost imperceptible change of the light occurred outside. I turned towards the window, and as I took another step, the light changed again. This time, however, the change was all dramatic, as I could see daylight streaming in through the window. Slowly, I took another step that caused the light to shift back to night, with the familiar orange glow of the streetlight shining through the blinds. With every step closer, the more time seemed to rush by, the light rapidly spinning between night and day over and over for what looked like years by the time I reached the window. It was night again when I pulled back the blinds to look out and see what was causing the phenomenon. However, the only thing I noticed was the face of a young boy staring back at me from the bedroom window of my house. I spun on my heels, ready to run back home to face the intruder. But then I stopped, remembering the face I saw in the window when I was a child. Everything seemed to make complete sense and no sense at the same time. Two opposing thoughts fighting for dominance of the same place. I felt tears rise in my eyes, unsure of what to think or do. But as I looked down, there were indentations in the dust where someone else's tears had fallen before mine. All I could think to do was run, so I did. I ran out of the room and down the stairs. As I went, I tried to compartmentalise my thoughts to separate the impossible from the possible. That wasn't me. It's not possible. None of this is possible. It wasn't me. I just need to I just need to report the cops and deal with whoever's in my house. That's all I need to do. That's all I can do. I was almost at the front door when I stopped in my tracks as someone on the other side knocked. A voice I instantly recognised called through. Oh, is anyone in there? It was my dad. That night he came round to check if anyone was inside the neighbour's house. I grabbed the door handle and twisted, pulled and shook it as hard as I could, but it wouldn't open. I'm here! Please, Dad, help me! Please, please help me! I screamed as hard as I could, but I already knew he hadn't heard me. He left soon after and I slumped down against the door, the dust moving away ahead of me as I sat, and I knew in my gut that I was trapped. I saw footprints appear again, running away from me. They headed to the back door and the windows, but eventually every one of them slumped down, sending up plumes of dust when the realisation hit them that they were all stuck here. I'm not sure how long I sat there, but eventually I pulled myself to my feet and walked back upstairs with a sinking feeling that I knew what I was going to find. Moving past the bathroom and the back bedroom, I opened the door to the large front bedroom and looked onto my fate. I should have felt terrified. Felt a cold chill wash over me until I broke down and screamed or cried. But I didn't. I was numb. And I knew deep down there wasn't any point in screaming. The room was filled with identically dressed corpses, all laid out in neat rows. They were all in various stages of decay and were unrecognisable aside from the blue jeans and black hoodies that they wore. I hadn't noticed it before with the other corpse that it was dressed identically to me. It isn't something you really think about when you first see one. As if you would say, Oh, sorry, oh, we're wearing matching outfits. Isn't it embarrassing? You just look away. But it was impossible to look away now. I thought about the footsteps running out of the front door that belonged to the me who made the right choice. But that choice was long gone. Looking down again, I saw a set of footsteps leading to every one of the corpses before turning and walking back out of the room. And so it was clear to me there was only one thing left to do. Like I said, I wouldn't leave that first corpse where it lay. So, slowly, 
I walked back through to the other room, to the other me in the chair. As I lifted him, a small digital clock dropped from his hands and landed in the dust, blinking up at me. 2112. 2112. 2112. It blinked over and over and never changed. All I could do was laugh. I mean, what else he meant to do in a moment like that? When you find yourself caught in a large cosmic joke? As I laughed, I carried me through to the other room and lay him down at the end of a row. In a way, it was nice that he wasn't going to be in his own anymore. Turned away and walked back through to where he once sat, picked up the clock, sat down and waited for me to arrive. Sometimes there's nothing else left to do but clean the house. Sure, you could dust, vacuum, wash, and polish, but does that really scrub the dirt away? The real, ingrained badness deep within the roots of the property? In this tale, shared with us by author Ken Broski, it's going to take a little more than bleach and elbow grease to get this address shipshape. It's going to need a spiritual cleansing. Performing this tale are Mike Delgadio, David Alt, Wafia White, Atticus Jackson, Kyle Akers, Lindsay Russo, Dan Zapula, Jimmy Ferrer, and Danielle McRae. So let's join this not-so-merry band of exorcists as they attempt to scourge the trauma that haunts 1237 Columbus. A body lay in the center of the lobby. They shined their flashlights on it. Five beams, like spotlights. In the dead silence, the click of the building's front door causes them to flinch, and the five beams of light bounce like fireflies. The sound belongs to the type of latch that locks automatically to the outside world. But each of them is aware of what keeps them locked inside as well. One of the beams of light follows a trail of blood down the lobby. The blood sits on beautiful tiled flooring, Machine has not yet been tarnished by thousands of bootsteps of workers removing everything of value from the building. The trail seems to stop at the far wall, where a section of the marble mural of New York City has been broken, leaving chunks on the floor. None of the five visitors are afraid of the corpse. What they fear is the darkness and the secrets it holds. Dr. K is the one to kneel down and check for a pulse. Nothing. His voice seems to hang in the vaulted ceiling among a constellation of stars and planets drawn with gold leaf. Dr. K flips the corpse onto its back. A man. His skin is as white as printing paper. The expression is frozen in a look of pure horror. Lita follows the gaze of his bloodshot eyes. He seems to be staring directly at the constellation Orion that looms twenty feet over their heads. Her gloved hands rub her arms. She can feel the dead man's fear. It lingers in the air like blue smoke. Quinn makes the call. He speaks tersely with the person on the other line. He makes it clear the body is not their responsibility. What a shitty day. 
Kubra pulls a pack of cigarettes from the pocket of her avenged sevenfold sweatshirt, distributing them to everyone but Dr. K. When the orange flame gets close to Lita's face, she can feel the warmth and smell the butane. Then it's gone, and the darkness closes in again. The stench of shit and something else, something ethereal. A smell that's hidden deep under the thousands of smells that exist in an occupied building. But in a building about to be demolished, with nothing left inside but ghosts and memories, a trained nose can smell it. Pain. Layers and layers of suffering, agony, despair, horror. 85 years of it. 46 stories of it. And the people, maybe hundreds of thousands or more, who've worked in this building, who's suffered in this building. An entire floor of attorneys and paralegals selling their souls on a daily basis. Offices for a Chinese newspaper downplaying atrocities perpetrated upon Uyghur Muslims. A social networking company that outsources its most horrific posts to low-paid moderators. A nonprofit that was embroiled in scandals for 20-plus years. A bank, five apparel companies, two cosmetic companies that still test their products on animals. And on and on. Lita knows the history of 1237 Columbus Avenue. But now, here, standing in the darkness and watching the bright orange cigarette cherries dance like fireflies as they move up to a mouth, grow hot, then fall back down, she can feel the history. This is her job. Dr. K is still kneeling in front of the corpse, shining his flashlight across the body. Middle-aged, not in very good shape. Only visible sign of trauma is the cut on his wrist. He was a supervisor for the construction company. How could you possibly be sure about that? Dr. K shines his light on the badge pinned to the man's shirt. Carlos de Leon, Worthington Building Partners, Incorporated. The unmistakable click of a latch turns the five back to the front door. A man steps inside, stopping in the darkness. Like a choreographed ballet, five beams of light guide him across the lobby. Only one, Kubra's, is squarely on his face, forcing him to squint and frown. He's a young man with dark, slicked-back hair, wearing a dress shirt and a blue tie that's been loosened at some point. Maybe he'd just gotten home after a long day of work, Lita thinks. When he sees the corpse, he steps back. Holy shit, you're Mr. Worthington's assistant. Quinn doesn't ask questions. He makes statements, and you either agree with him or not. He doesn't like it when you don't agree with him. He's been doing this for too long now to deal with ignorant bullshit. The scars on his face run so deep, it's a wonder you can't see bone. Lita can feel the years and years of sacrifice he's made to this job, the way you can feel hot coals through steel. David Murphy, did you call the police yet? That's not our job. Why would... He turns, squints, and reaches for Kubra's flashlight, turning it away from his face. Why wouldn't you? Jesus Christ, there's a corpse! Adam Wagner finally speaks up. He uses a quiet, patient voice. If we call the police, they'll turn this entire building into a crime scene. We won't be able to perform the exorcism, and it would be very dangerous for police to move through the building now. Do you understand? The young man begins pacing. Is this normal? No. Adam glances at Lita. She feels her heart flutter. 
He's worried for her. They don't know each other well outside of this, and yet she can't deny the attraction has grown over the years. Lita feels Quinn's eyes. She wonders if he saw the moment she had just shared with Adam. Help us move the body out of the lobby, into the basement. Right, right. Okay, then I go. I I don't want any part of this. Then you go. The elevators are out of the question. A building this old, carrying so many horrors, it would be a miracle to survive the descent. So, together, with Quinn and Mr. Murphy, Lita helps drag the corpse into the basement. The other three are taking the stairs up to the 10th floor, which has been empty for over a year. A good place to begin the ritual. Quinn carries most of the weight down the stairs, listening absently to Mr. Murphy's terrified questions. Quinn has no patience for people like this. He's been through too many exorcisms. But Lita is an empath, and she feels compelled to give Mr. Murphy answers. She explains, as best she can, how a building can accumulate so many horrible memories. Are we talking murders? Sure. There were a few. Careful here. Lita shines her light on the turn in the staircase to ensure Quinn and Mr. Murphy don't trip. There was a couple having an affair on the 15th floor in the office of the husband while he was on business trips. They killed him when he arrived home early one night. What about, like, torture? Lita shakes her head. Mm -mm. It's the common pain we never deal with that builds up. The anxiety and sadness of a secretary who endured a lifetime of sexual harassment. A banker who moved mob money, a lawyer who killed his conscience to represent a tobacco company, a depressed survivor who got daily reports of all the horrible, illegal shit people post on social media. All of it builds up. But so what? Mr. Murphy has begun breathing heavily. Quinn thinks he must spend most of his time in the Worthington offices. A company that big is haunted by its own pain and suffering. When it finally must go down and be replaced by an even taller building, it will need to be exercised. I like to imagine it like this. Lita opens the door to the basement and steps aside, shining a light on the concrete floor. Every bit of pain and suffering and anxiety and sadness is an egg. And all these eggs are are being pushed into a kitchen trash can. What happens when you put an M80 under the trash can? Egg yolk. Everywhere. Exactly. Lita smiles at Quinn as he carries the corpse past her. (laughs) We just remove the eggs before the M80 goes off. Sorry for the weird metaphor. I grew up on a farm. The basement is dark. Lita shines a light around, revealing a machine shop to the left and doors farther away to the right. Pipes run along the ceiling like blood vessels. Quinn feels his heart constrict at the sight. This building is alive. No, this building is dead. The words fight in his head, back and forth. A memory comes to him of another building, this one in Chicago, an apartment building filled with horrifying racist angst that seeped out of the walls. White residents who'd gone to great lengths for decades to prevent any black tenants from moving in. By the time Quinn had arrived, Their prejudice painted every room and ate into the old drywall like acid. So what happens when Worthington puts up a new building? If we did our job right, then it'll have a clean slate. Not for long. 
We think because we can move on from the pain that it simply disappears. But pain is a shadow. Quinn? He clears his head. There. He nods to the left. They carry the body to a workshop station next to a table saw and drill press. Quinn feels the relief in his shoulders once he's no longer carrying the body. He should have never survived this long. He's lucky. That's what the other crab fishermen used to say back when he was a teenager. Everyone else had injuries. Crab fishing had a 100% casualty rate. So does this job. I'll need to get an Uber home. Before Mr. Murphy's thumb can unlock his phone, Quinn's callous hand is around his neck. He pushes the man to the wall behind the table saw. I'm so sorry. Lita! She shines a light on Mr. Murphy's horrified face. His questions are choked by Quinn's grip. Carlos de Leon, work through this man! Mr. Murphy's brown irises fade to white. What happened? Mr. Murphy's voice changes. Lighter, sadder, just a hint of a Hispanic accent. I wanted to see the building before it came down. What happened? Something followed me in the darkness. Drool escapes from Mr. Murphy's mouth. It frightened me. I ran. I cut my wrists on purpose. I wanted to feed the building my pain. Quinn's muscles tighten. This building is more dangerous than they'd expected. When you woke for your last shift on the Yankee Doodle, were you scared of the bodies? Quinn looks into the whites of the young man's eyes. He's never told anyone about his last day as a crab fisherman. Did you roll in the blood? Mr. Murphy bites his tongue hard. Blood slides down his chin, following the slick trail of saliva. Did you lick it from the steering wheel? Could you feel the horror surging through the bowels? When the crabs turned manic, could you hear the click, click, click of their claws? Quinn, let him go, now! You should have exercised that boat. You should have never fled. Now it sits at the bottom of the ocean. Schools of fish swim through its hull, and they go mad. Their blood clouds the water. Something grabs Quinn's leg. Lita screams and falls back, shining her light. The corpse of Carlos de Leon. Quinn tears himself away. Darkness overwhelms the beam of light, blanketing the dead man's body, moving him like a marionette. What's happening? Mr. Murphy rubs his eyes. What? He screams as the corpse grabs his legs. Lita, run! Quinn has to shout because the table saw has turned on and its blade screams like a banshee. Quinn takes one look back in time to see the two shadows merge. Mr. Murphy's cries for help muffled by a cold, stiff hand. Quinn takes the stairs two at a time, shining his flashlight ahead. Lita moves quickly on younger muscles. Quinn does his best to keep up. He doesn't want her to get too far ahead. He feels responsible for her, for all of them. She stops at the door. Quinn follows her through before he realizes they're one floor below the tenth. Lita, in her panic, has accidentally counted the basement as the first floor. The ninth floor is alive. It's an open concept office space, but all the partitions and glass and cubicles have been removed. They don't need flashlights to see the ghosts. They glow like creatures living at the pitch black bottom of the ocean. A middle-aged woman cutting her legs with a razor blade. 
an older man dressed in vintage clothes, pacing back and forth, muttering silently to himself. Another man standing near one of the windows, debating whether to jump. Lita's breaths come rapidly. Quinn grabs her and carries her back to the stairwell. They have to hurry now. It's already begun. Kubra finishes painting the pentagram on the concrete floor while Dr. K and Adam arrange the candles. They're reciting verses from their holy books as they do so. This is their role, and they take it seriously. Kubra dips her paintbrush in the little quart-sized can of white paint and begins writing on the walls. She starts with the 72nd chapter of the Quran, then the first chapter, and finally the second chapter. Al-Jin, Al-Fatiha, Al-Baqarah. This order, she's learned, has had the most profound effect in drawing out the evil that haunts these old buildings. But painting all the letters is a total bitch. She can multitask, though. She can recite some parts, paint other parts. She's still experimenting. Every exorcism, she varies the sentences she paints across the walls. Which of the holy words has the most power? She jots down notes in her journal when she gets home. After showering away the sweat and terror... In this way, she sees herself as a scientist. She always wanted to be a scientist growing up, but never got the chance. If they ever had to exercise her childhood home, Lita would see images of Kubra's father destroying a chemistry set in the basement, throwing a tantrum over Kubra's secret collection of bugs, burning her journal full of drawings of plants and flowers from the backyard. He wanted her to be an engineer. Engineers make more money. That's all he cared about. She reached one of the two corner offices. The door is open, the room empty. She chooses a special passage from the Quran for this room. And as for Kasina, they shall be the firewood for hell. The moment she paints the last word, they appear. Ghosts of painful memories, a woman in the corner, sobbing, her flapper dress torn. Two workmen tumbling on the concrete floor, punching each other violently. A man at a desk writing something on a piece of paper. If Lita were here, she could tell Kubra about their pain. Kubra, ever the curious one, can only walk over to the ghostly man at the desk. She bends over to read what he's writing. Regarding your husband's recent death, I am sorry to be the one to tell you that Unity Fair Life Insurance will not be paying out the policy. Please see the section of your contract regarding suicide. You asshole. The man looks up at her, looks directly at her. He stands from his desk. Kubra steps back on shaky legs, her body going numb. That's not supposed to happen. Her mind searches desperately for the passages of Al-Fatiha, her mouth mumbling them as she backs out of the room. Something catches her eye, the door to the other corner office. It's open just a crack, and a tall, dark figure is standing there, watching her. She runs back to the pentagram just as Quinn and Lita burst through the stairwell door. Hurry, we have trouble. The pentagram's candles flicker as each exorcist takes a seat at one of the points. Adam crosses his legs, one hand absently reaching for the cross around his neck. He gives it a kiss. Cold darkness presses on his back. He's never felt such pressure from a building before. It's as if the air all around him has accumulated mass, soaking into the darkness, pressing so hard that the candle flames bend sideways. And then it's begun. The others fall into a trance, one by one. 
whosoever will be saved, before all things. Adam's vision blurs. His fingers clamp tightly on his knees. From all around him come screams of agony. With faith, unless every one do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. Something moves behind Quinn. Adam can see it on the edge of the darkness, its gray flesh absorbing the oranges of the nearest candle flames. Perspiration gathers on Adam's forehead. He's never seen anything like this thing. One clawed hand reaches for Quinn. Adam cannot break concentration. He must continue. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. Ghosts of men and women wearing fashionable clothes are drawn into the pentagram. They dance and jump around like caged animals. They rend the flesh from their bones. And yet they are not three Eternals, but one Eternal. The others are struggling. Tears stream down Dr. K's cheeks. Quinn's face has turned a purplish red. Kubra's entire body is shaking. The building's aggression is eating them alive. So the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Holy Ghost is God. He closes his eyes. He has to focus. There is no tongue licking the back of his neck. There is no blood seeping out of his acne scars. There is no snake coiling around his torso. It's the building. For the right faith is that we believe and confess. Adam! Ita Deus et homo unus es Christus. Adam! He opens his eyes. Lita is staring at him. She reaches out a hand and touches him. Her fingers warm to the touch. We can't fight it with just words. It's, it's too powerful. His prayer trails off. She's moved off the pentagram, crawling over to him. She looks so beautiful, so vulnerable. He catches her before she collapses onto the floor. It's not enough to recite the prayers. Her hand wraps around the back of his head. He's wanted this for so many years. To feel her hand on his body, her fingers on the back of his neck. He's wanted her to love him the way he loves her. We can only win this if we work together. She pulls him close. Their lips touch. Adam feels the power coursing through her. Of course, she's an empath. She's using the feelings they share for each other, magnifying it somehow. And it's working. He can feel the darkness receding. He can feel the horrible memories dying away, fading into nothingness. And he loves this woman. He loves Lita with all his heart. Dr. K cannot open his eyes. He knows that's what the building wants him to do. He knows it's trying to scare him, trying to manipulate his thoughts and break his concentration. He speaks the ninth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, then moves to the seventh chapter, then to the third. The most confidential knowledge to the knowledge of the Absolute, to the Karma Yoga. This sequence can kill the horrible memories that haunt this place. But it fights back with a violence that Dr. K has never experienced. And behind his eyes, the last day of his daughter's life play out. She is standing on the sidewalk outside their house. She is playing with a ball. The ball goes into the street. The evil wants Dr. K to cry out. 
It wants him to try and save her, even though she cannot be saved. She will go into the street. She will be hit by the passing car. Her body will roll under the wheels and she will lie there in pain, breathing heavily, moaning as her life slowly, agonizingly fades away. He will watch it all and cry, but he won't break his concentration. Fatima looks at him. She drops the ball and it rolls into the street, only instead of following it, she stands there looking at her father. She cocks her head. Papa? He recognizes her voice. It takes every ounce of strength not to call her to him. Papa? She holds out her arms. Her face crinkles in the way he remembers, the way she expressed simple pain over a simple request, a cup of orange juice, an extended bedtime, her father's embrace. He knows all it will take is for him to call out her name and she'll come running to him. He'll be able to feel her little body pressed against his once again. But he must not. And he will not. And it hurts so deep inside his heart that it feels like the pain must exist in an infinite black hole. The pain we carry falls from us like crisp autumn leaves. And then the image is gone. Dr. K opens his eyes. Everyone is still concentrating. Everyone but Adam and the black scaly creature attached to him that has begun eating his face. Quinn knows something is wrong. It's his job to know. He opens his eyes and sees Dr. K pointing in horror at the thing attached to Adam, like some primordial, primal humanoid creature whose flesh has been turned inside out and its great gaping mouth is clamping down on Adam's face while he screams down his throat. Quinn stands, pulls his knife, and leaps at the creature. All around him, he can feel the building regaining its strength. The darkness squeezes. Don't let up! Adam! Focus! Quinn digs the knife into the back of the creature. Its wet flesh burns his skin. Don't let up, damn it! He wraps one arm around its neck, using his weight to pull it back. But it doesn't let go of Adam, dragging all three of them onto the floor. The weight of the darkness has lifted. The others have refocused their prayers. He risks a look at Lita. Despite her concern, she's managed to close her eyes. She trusts Quinn to save Adam. The creature's elbow digs into Quinn's stomach. He grunts, keeping his grip around its neck, stabbing again and again and again. Black, foul-smelling blood oozes out of the wounds, but the creature refuses to let go. Adam, Adam, you have to let go of it. Whatever it's showing you, it's not real. Before it's too late, Adam. The creature swings wildly, its claws ripping through Quinn's coat. He cries out in pain, cutting through the creature's muscles until he feels bone. But its giant mouth refuses to open. Blood trickles down Adam's cheeks. Adam! Adam, let go of whatever it's showing you! A stifled cry. Quinn glances over his shoulder. He sees Lita looking at them. Tears stream down her cheeks. It's not simply the empath in her, he realizes. And suddenly, he knows how it got to Adam. Adam, 
He keeps a grip on the creature's slippery right arm so he can get close to Adam's ear. Adam, Lita is in danger. Let go. It's the only way to keep her safe. Adam's body goes limp. The creature's mouth opens and it lets out a scream, swinging madly at Quinn. He jumps back into the center of the pentagram where he can feel the air swirling like a tornado, snatching his breath from his lungs. He crawls back to his point of the pentagram, watching the horrible creature turn, its gaping mouth taking up most of its circular face, bits of flesh still clinging to its teeth. The creature flinches. It lets out a horrible scream. The air all around them swirls faster. The candles blow out, leaving them in darkness. And then everything is quiet. A flashlight turns on. Then another. Then another. Then a fourth. They wait. Finally, Quinn shines his flashlight on Adam's body. He feels a profound sadness at the sight. He's failed Adam failed to protect him, and now the young man is just another casualty of the pain we leave behind, the horror and sadness and agony that's never addressed. They pack up their things. Dr. K holds on to a sobbing Lita. Kubra lights a cigarette. Quinn dials Worthington's number. It's done. You can take down the building. And put up a new one to accumulate a fresh conglomeration of horrors. We've already learned about that one house in the neighborhood, but also every neighborhood has that one person, the one who doesn't fit, the bad egg. Nobody likes them, and the feeling is reciprocated. Sometimes this reputation is deserved, other times it's unfair. Often, nobody knows the truth of it. But in this tale, shared with us by author Eric Johnson, one man has an insight into his community's wicked woman. Performing this tale are Jeff Clement, Matthew Bradford, Kyle Akers, and Ellie Hirschman. So let's take a trip down memory lane, back to the days before her house got raised, and discover the final fate of the neighborhood's baddie, Old Hag Harris. It was a whim that took me to exit the freeway on my way home and down through the neighborhood where I grew up. Somewhat out of curiosity to see how much things had changed and somewhat for the sense of nostalgia of passing through the familiar streets I had known as a child. I grew up in a cul-de-sac, one of several forming a small suburb, a cluster of housing nestled in the industrial outskirts of the city. It was a crossroads, encroaching civilization merging with what was formerly empty wildland, integrated into a new coexistence. 
Although now, where there were once empty fields, run-down truck stops, and abandoned warehouses, instead stood row after row of housing, streets filled with clusters of apartments, stores, and sterile street corner parks. What was left of the neighborhood really had changed, not only in its architecture and people, but in the way I saw it. The sense of openness was gone as the city stretched, burying the suburbs with a cold, asphalt landscape, the wild no longer tucked away in pockets cutting between industrial sprawl. Fields, once pockmarked with prairie dog holes, were paved over, turned into parking lots. The abandoned high school, where foxes had once roamed, was demolished. The lot lost somewhere in the maze of streets. Turning down the cul-de-sac, I wondered about the stray cats that used to dart through the alleys, living off the field mice in the untamed undergrowth. Still, just as how pigeons, seagulls, and rats learned to carve out niches in the larger cities, I wondered if any animals had remained, hidden just out of sight. As I passed my old house, soaking in the fleeting, distant memories, the last lot came into view. An empty square of unmanaged weeds and dirt sitting past a fallen chain-link fence. The only thing left standing is a bent mailbox, barely clinging to its post. The lot stands as a stark blight next to the manicured homes that line either side. It's this abandoned patch of ground that gives me a sense of relief that this whole neighborhood will soon be a sea of concrete and buildings. In that lot... There used to stand a house infamous to our neighborhood. That house and the old woman who lived there were the reason I left as soon as I could and moved far into the heart of the city as possible. It was years ago, during one particularly hot summer when I was a boy, still on the cusp of my teenage years. The streets were our playground when we were out of school. With enough kids in the neighborhood to form a small group, friends by proximity, we had free reign to explore, ride bikes, and get lost among the abandoned backlots. Many of our days were spent at the river running behind our homes on the other side of the backyard fence. At times, little more than a murky, polluted creek skimming the edge of the neighborhood. The one condition I had was to return home when the streetlights turned on. Then... There was that house, still sitting in a mess of weeds, with a slightly less dented mailbox clinging to the fence post. A squat, single-story home with a basement, a neglected relic of the late 40s or early 50s, and caked with faded yellow paint. A layer of grime had built up over it, clinging to the windows, choking out any light that tried to enter. There was a murkiness, a sinister feeling sitting behind those windows, especially a few low to the ground that peered out from the basement. A palpable odor soaked through those walls, drifting into the very air on warm evenings. There was something more than just the dilapidation of the house that inspired such aversion. It was the person living there. No one knew the actual name of the reclusive old woman, other than the faded name Harris on the mailbox and the epithet Hag crudely spray-painted on the side, a fitting moniker. 
Old Hag Harris. Some people are just determined to be miserable. No one ever visited there. No one ever seemed to even step on that porch, knock on the door, or even wave hello on the few rare occasions she'd been seen outside its walls. But she was always watching. Look long enough, and you'd see it in the windows. The movement of a curtain, followed by the stare of glassy eyes from the darkness inside. Step by her house, you'd know she was watching you. Like a sixth sense. And she had no problem flinging open one of the dirty windows and releasing a string of offenses at us, slurred from toothless gums. The slightest noise after dark, anyone daring to lean on her fence or staring too long at the rotting house. God forbid a ball were to land in her yard, something none of us ever dared to brave the dead weed to snatch back. Even my parents warned me about stepping past that fence. They'd never admit it, but I could tell they were uneasy about that place too. That house exuded an aura far worse than any smell seeping through its frame. Still, I couldn't help but wonder about that woman. What kind of life she lived, alone and locked away from the world. I couldn't imagine she'd ever had any children. Even the other elderly neighbors down the street would have the occasional visitor. Often they're adult children with grandchildren in tow. Harris was always alone. It was easy to imagine as a child, lacking insight and empathy. She was just an evil old woman, full of nothing but hate. Of course she'd never had anything she'd ever loved. No one she'd ever taken care of. I guess the favor was returned. No one would ever be there to take care of her. It happened one summer evening. We were playing, trying to squeeze the last few minutes of our game into the fading day, when I'd made the unfortunate discovery of what was on the other side of those walls. The five of us stood at the gate in silence, staring at the house as the television flickered through the window, sporadically lighting the room and just as quickly dropping it back into darkness. The curtains of the large front window were open, a rarity, giving us a view of the room. She sat on the couch, facing the TV, with her permed white hair silhouetted against the screen. The baseball had barely missed her, sending shards of broken glass scattered across the back of the couch and over her shoulders. Perfectly still, with her head trained on the TV, she didn't move. We only stood and stared at a loss, unsure what to do next. After having summarily scattered, as usual, whenever we thought we might be in trouble, the silence had drawn us back in, one by one. We huddled in a group, just as still as Harris on the couch. Was this some sort of trap? Maybe she'd finally snapped and was sitting there in a motionless, murderous rage, ready to pounce on the first one foolish enough to step into the yard. Maybe cook us and eat us like a witch from a fairy tale. Or maybe something was really wrong. We should just go. Jason was the first to say it, 
what we all wanted to hear. I wanted to run, to believe it'd be fixed somehow. I think we all felt that way. Nobody moved. Maybe it was fear, or morbid curiosity. We can't just leave the ball. Michael was Jason's older brother, and the oldest and bravest of us. Naturally, the leader of our little clique. Something was chilling in the way his voice wavered, even if we all pretended we couldn't hear it. She'll know we broke the window. You know, when she wakes up. There was a murmur of agreement as we all avoided eye contact. A sinking feeling had settled in my gut, pressing against my chest. When she wakes up. Somebody has to go get it. The illusion of confidence fully left his voice as he stared at the figure through the window. We all stared with him as the prospect of actually going in there loomed over us. The room behind the dirty glass bathed in the flickering ghost light. No way. I turned back to see Michael looking at me. All of them were. I was the youngest. Always the one pushed into doing things. Still, there was no way I'd ever go into that yard, much less the house. Except, this time I had the misfortune of owning the ball. To leave it lying somewhere in that room would kill any chance of plausible deniability. Your mom saw you leave with it, right? I shot Jason a look, even if he was right. I'd ran right past her clumsily dragging the bat, ball, and glove. Either way, everyone would know we'd broken the window. We all knew that. It was just a matter of who'd take the fall. Unless I could grab the evidence. Better to hide in the silence of the group. As much as I didn't want to get in trouble, there was no damn chance I was going into that house, not with a dead woman in there. Maybe we should tell someone. Like, maybe she's hurt or something. We all stood in uneasy silence as the streetlights overhead flicked to life, orange against the darkening sky. My mom would be calling me home any minute. She's probably just a heavy sleeper. Daniel kept his head down, refusing to look at me. It's easy to speak up in a crowd especially if you're not the one facing the prospect of actually having to go in. I turned back to look at Michael, to beg him to do it for us. Instead, I saw him standing open-mouthed, his arm shakily pointing. I looked to see it too. Harris. I watched, my eyes locked on that white puff of hair until I was sure until there was no other explanation. Faintly, gently, her head rocked forward. At once, waves of relief and dread rushed over me. I felt like I was going to puke. Maybe we had overreacted in our panic. Of course she wasn't dead. She was old and decrepit, her hearings going out. She'd have missed the sound of the window breaking. She wouldn't feel the glass sitting on her shoulders. I let these thoughts run through my head. I even believed them. 
Imentai still had a chance to get the ball, to find a way out of this. Then I'd hide in my room and never go outside again. Down the street, I heard my mother's voice calling for me. I looked back toward the others pleadingly. A wave of eyes shot down, avoided contact. I wasn't going to find any help here. My 11-year-old brain strained for any way out, for any other angle than going in, especially alone. The streetlight above us buzzed, growing louder as the night crept in. I turned back toward the house, and the nodding figure perched on the couch. Dead weeds crunched beneath my sneakers as I waded past them, heart thundering in my chest. I craned my head around to see the others hiding across the street. Cowards. They weren't there to support me. They weren't cheering me on. They were a group of bystanders gathered around a car wreck just to watch the morbid scene. I took another step, my legs quivering like jelly. My eyes stayed locked on the window, and the small puff of hair sank under the threshold as I drew closer. I lowered to a crawl, slinking to the ground, dread hanging over me as she disappeared from my sight. My hands pushed against the cold concrete of the walkway, pebbles driving themselves into my palms. The front door was open, with only a thin screen between me and the inside of the house. A thick, fetid smell clung to the air that wafted out, baked from the afternoon heat. Quickly, I realized it was far worse not being able to see her, like I could feel her standing the second she left my sight. Like I would reach for the handle, grabbing it, only to feel my wrist caught in a withered harpy claw as she peered down, toothless, wrinkled, and ugly. I forced myself to focus on the handle. Nothing stirred as I reached out, my ears attuned for even the slightest movement. The low, steady hum of the television drifted out. Another sound came with it, one I couldn't quite place. It was a steady, faint scraping with an irregular rhythm, like someone brushing the blade of a knife against a piece of wood. It was followed by a small pop, like a stick cracking. My concentration broke as my mother called again, louder this time, with worry growing in her voice. I turned the handle, slinking in quietly. My eyes slowly adjusted to the darkness as I crawled over the threshold. The puffed leather arm of the couch leaned above me to the right, giving me a few feet of hiding space to crawl in. To my relief, it hid Harris from me, too. The television spilled what light it could over a labyrinth of junk. Vague shapes of furniture, stacked high with clutter, filled most of the room. Piles of newspapers, old boxes, and loose junk covered most of the ground, with only a few paths clear enough to walk through. In the corner was a cradle, with a moth-eaten quilt draped over the side. Somehow, it stood out of place amidst the squalor. 
not just because it lacked the coat of dust that settled over the rest of the room. It was the last thing I'd expected to find. I wondered how many years it had stood empty in that corner, and why it hadn't fallen victim to the clutter that choked everything else. There was a crunch, like another twig snapping from somewhere in the room. There was a path in front of me, leading through the junk. If I dropped to my stomach, I could crawl through it slowly and quietly, small enough I had a chance of passing by unseen. I traced the path with my eyes to the door it led to, and the staircase leading down the other side. The basement. The thought of that place unnerved me. A primal aversion cutting through the already palpable dread. But I wouldn't have to get that close. The baseball lay in the path in front of me, barely out of arm's reach. All I had to do was scoot a little closer and grab it. I risked one last look at my friends through the door. They were waving their arms at me, too distant to distinguish much else. I couldn't make out the words, but they were yelling and pointing to the window. Panic flooded through me as I thought about the implications. How I was stupid enough to come in here or to think I could get away with this. She had to be awake. I peeked up to my right. I could see her eyes, just cresting over the couch cushion as they stared at the television. Still motionless. The bastards. I glared back through the door. They were fucking with me. I knew it. Of all the times to play a stupid trick, trying to freak me out. Maybe trying to wake her up. I wished they would get what was coming to them, Michael and Jason especially. They were probably the ones riling everyone else up. To hell with sneaking. I quickly crawled up and grabbed the baseball, rolling it into my hand, tensed and ready to sprint the hell out. I froze there on my knees, realization setting in what I had just seen. Her eyes. They were open. The ball slipped through my fingers, rolling toward the basement door as I turned back mechanically. Her eyes were open. A dull, empty glaze reflected in the light, her head faintly bobbing. This was death. I'd never seen it before, but it's something you just understand. The sparkle of life was gone. Her head moved again. It lulled, rolled forward a bit, and came to a rest. My mind couldn't process what I was seeing. She was dead, and her head just moved. I didn't know much about the human body at that point, and even less about what happened to it after death. But I knew it wasn't supposed to move. Somewhere in my shock, I felt my body begin to move as well. Leaning back down, I crawled to the ball, sitting at the threshold of the stairs. Don't look back. Don't look at her. 
I reached for the ball. From the shadow of the basement, a small, dark arm reached out, ending in a thin hand no longer than a few inches, the size of a child's, but only vaguely human in shape and covered with a thin layer of black ooze. One of its thin, protruding nails touched the ball with a curious tap. A silhouette was crouched on the stairs before me, its figure hidden except for the small, reflective eyes that followed the ball as it rolled toward me. That rancid stench poured from it, burning in my nostrils. I jumped to my feet, nearly stumbling through a pile of junk as I ran toward the door. In a step, my body stopped cold. I finally saw what my friends had been trying to warn me about. Old hag Harris was sitting dead as a doornail on the couch. In the thin sliver of light that came from the window, I saw something that looked like a hairless cat perched on her shoulder, looking out of the glass. Most of the creature was obscured behind her head, with just a thin tail and leg visible. Glossy black skin clung tight against sinewy flexed muscles, slick and dripping with that same dark excretion. Below it, another creature sat on her lap, its head bobbing at her chest like a suckling child. A cluster of mangy fur hung between its shoulder blades. A crimson stain soaked the woman's shirt from the collar to the creature. With a small snap, it leaned back, gnawing on a fragment of bone held in its human-like hands. Harris's head rolled with the movement. Something between a gasp and a shriek escaped my lungs as I saw the hole chewed into her torso. The first dark shape jumped, quickly sliding off the couch and disappearing behind it. The thing in her lap curled up defensively, the patch of hair on its back rising into a ridge of needles as it hissed. Deep, sunken eyes met mine, staring back with a near-too-human face. Then it was gone, lost among the warren of piled junk, leaving just me and the dead woman in the living room. I sprinted, screaming through the door and into the night, straight home, past the riled cluster of wide-eyed kids, and into the arms of my mother. My parents' faces turned from anger to concern as I stammered my story incoherently through waves of tears. Soon after, the lights of police cars reflected off the coroner's van. A few police officers came over to ask me questions, but dismissed my story as the imagination of a child trying to comprehend the shock of finding a woman's corpse. She'd been dead for just over a day. Our conversation was stopped short as a scream came from the house. The two officers interviewing me looked at each other before rushing out. We followed them to our porch. 
a coroner came rushing from the house, clutching a bleeding hand. One officer ran to him as the other ran to the door. They had their weapons drawn. Soon after, an ambulance and a fire truck rolled into the cul-de-sac. Then, animal control. Her body was still inside. My parents ushered me back into the house, insisting I'd seen enough. They didn't want me to see them bring her out. I found Michael and Jason the next day. I needed to speak to someone else who saw what I did, who knew what was in that house. I was wrong. They claimed not to have seen anything. Someone, somewhere in the group, had just screamed they'd seen a face in the window. That was it. Michael was unusually quiet and insisted that I'd seen a cat and freaked myself out. I never brought up the creatures from that night again. Not to anyone. Natural causes, according to her obituary. No mention of monsters eating her. The unofficial story, of course, became another local legend about an old woman dying and being eaten by her cats. The property sat abandoned long after. Old Lady Harris didn't have any relatives to claim it. I never called her hag after that day, either. Maybe I felt a touch of empathy after seeing what those things did to her remains. We did our best to ignore it as our games moved further up the street, just enough to keep that house out of sight. The very land beyond that fence felt tainted, not only with her death in the living room, but with another, more palpable sense of wrongness. That smell that still seemed to pour through the cracks in the boarded-up windows. It was a relief to everyone when the bulldozer came through, finally putting the building to rest, along with the stories of the crazy old lady and the stench of her diseased brood. We never did get in trouble for breaking old lady Harris's window. One day, in the months the house sat abandoned, I found something. Riding my bike along the dirt path that followed the river, passing the wooden fences of our backyards, watching the setting sun whir through the planks. I skid to a stop, dirt and rocks flying in a cloud around my tires. Beneath the fence that used to sit behind her house, broken down and nearly reclaimed by the foliage, was a small hole. About a foot deep beneath the wood, and the plank above marred with scratch marks. It could have been a stray dog or a raccoon. It could have been any kind of animal. But it stopped my heart cold. I thought of the last image I'd kept with me from that house. A moment seared in my mind. The thing I still see in my nightmares. When I had run from that room, as I grabbed the door handle, I looked back only for a second. I saw that cradle and the ratty old quilt draped over the side. I saw it move gently 
brushed aside, and the cluster of small yellow eyes that peeked out. So it was no surprise when the neighborhood cats started going missing soon after. When the feral population dwindled over the years, disappearing entirely. Then the night our border collie vanished, a hole appearing beneath our fence. Or when, years later, Jason went down by the river and never came back. Michael refused to ever speak of that night or the house. His family moved shortly after, the first of many, as the street grew quiet and empty in my last years there. I stepped out of my car, the memories dredging with me as I walked through the lot. Maybe it was more than a whim that led me here. Maybe I was trying to convince myself one way or the other. Often, that day didn't seem real. More like a bad dream from my childhood. In years of counseling, I only learned I couldn't tell anyone the truth. At best, they just wouldn't believe me. Yet here I was, stepping through that lot again, so many years later. Everything so different, and the memories so vivid. I never managed to get the baseball back. And I wondered if it was buried somewhere a few feet beneath me, still just out of reach. Most of the backyard fence had fallen over. I stepped on a section, looking at the river, the last vestige of the wilderness, set against a skyline of smokestacks and housing, watching the water flow towards the city, refusing to disappear like an old scar. I stood there, thinking about the time that had passed and the things that called that river home. Things that had have grown up by now. All the people who vanished here and not just the children and cats anymore. And the smell reported coming up from the river at night. Maybe it was just runoff from the factories, like most people said. Maybe it wasn't. Either way, the street lights were coming on, so I headed home. In our final tale, we find ourselves privy to correspondence from a man with a great responsibility. Inheritance can come at a great price, and nobody knows this more than Nathaniel. And in this tale, shared with us by author A. E. Stuvey, we're given a unique insight into the heavy and oftentimes horrific burden that Mr. Waits bears. I join Peter Lewis. Graham Rowett, Sarah Thomas, Mary Murphy, Ellie Hirschman, Aaron Lillis, Matthew Bradford, and Jimmy Ferrer in performing this tale. 
So let's settle back and listen to the words of our new pal, Nathan. Just make sure one of us stands guard. We wouldn't want anything to escape while we're reading a letter from Wormhouse. Nephew, I'm just going to dive right in. A few years after my grandma, your great-grandma, died, I found myself on hard times. I drank, I smoked, I caroused. Generally, I was avoiding growing up, even as my sisters got married and had kids, even as my parents pushed me to change. Don't think I had a special relationship with my grandma, though. Her death wasn't a trigger. I'd always been like that. Some of us are born broken, or rather, unsure of our purpose. You know what that's like, though, don't you? When my sister, I don't remember if it was your mom or your aunt, called me one afternoon as I sat in my car, listening to rain beat against the roof and wondering where everything went wrong. The only thing I was ready for was another drink. Cold air seeped through the cracked window and brought with it a dampness that my last cigarette hopelessly fought. Though I was unaware of it at the time, I was at the end of my life as I knew it. If my sister hadn't called... I probably would have been dead the next morning, my body chilling in some ditch in South Dakota for reasons that seem ludicrously unimportant now. Anyway, she had news. Grandpa's dead. Her voice was a great wall of words, empty of emotion, unbreakable, just there, blocking my path. Our grandpa, as you know, had rarely been a part of our lives. So? I replied. (sighs) He left you everything. It's... It's a lot. My eyes went wide. My cigarette ashed away in my shaking hand. I was unable to speak. Nathan? I blinked my mind blank with shock. Uh, Um... I believe is all I could come up with. She sighed again, an expression both of my sisters often used when communicating with me. It's probably the same with you isn't it? You have two sisters, too, if I remember right. A few days later, I found myself outside the small town of Oakview, Nebraska, with an engorged bank account. I didn't ask where Grandpa had gotten all the money. To me, it didn't matter. I had a new way to get booze and smoke. I had a place to live, and my sisters, damn them, were finally jealous of me instead of the other way around. Let me tell you something about Oakview. It's one of those towns that you don't think exists anymore. 
that has a town square that is actually four roads surrounding a square park with a courthouse in the middle. Quaint little shops line the main streets. People say hi to one another when they walk by. They wave from their cars when they're cruising through town. Back then, when I first moved there, they would even stop the corner restaurant, actually called the corner restaurant for supper, and stay there for hours, hanging out with neighbors, eating pie and drinking coffee or beer. And guess what? 25 years later, and they still do. It is the kind of town where, to this day, kids play kick the can at night. Kick the can. It is pleasant, welcoming, even. It was easy to think this place was going to be great for me. It had a seemingly restorative element to it. How could I drink and drug my life away when I was surrounded by such pleasantness? It was a question I seriously pondered. Well, for about a day. That's how long it took for word to get out that I was the new owner of Wormwood House. Not only that, but I was the burnout grandson of the former owner. Thanks, Internet. Anyway, I think it was the gas station attendant who started the phone tree after I introduced myself to him the second morning. I'm Nathan Waite, Vincent Howard's grandson. I'm the new owner of the Wormwood House. I said as we shook hands above the twelve-pack I placed on his counter. His smile melted. His hand, in mine, grew cold, as cold as the word that climbed out of his throat next. A stuttered, oh, followed by an unapproving grunt. By the second day, people avoided me. By the third day, if I was on the north side of the street, the south side would be crowded. By the end of the week, if I approached the checkout counter at the general store, people stepped aside. Clerks were willing to serve, but not happy about it. It didn't take long before children were openly frightened of me, and some women too. Men were aggressive, and some women too. What the hell had old Vincent Howard done to these people? What the hell was my grandfather about? Well, I found out in time. Wormwood rests about a mile or so outside of Oakview on ten acres of wooded land. There is one long dirt road that crawls away from the main highway and wiggles through the trees like... I don't even want to say it now, like a worm... It leads to what was once a barn, but has since been transformed into an oversized garage with an apartment above it. When I first arrived in Oakview, I thought about renting it out, until I smelled it up there. It was like someone had died, come back to life, and then died again in an explosion of shit. I tried to get a cleaning lady to come out, but none in Oakview would. Not even the Immaculate Heart Catholic Church Women Auxiliary Welcoming Committee or the IHCCWAWC. Yes, that's an actual thing here in Oakview. The 
house was a different story. I'm sure you've heard some strange and guarded information about it. After all, your grandma, my mom, lived there for a few terrible, terrible years when she was a child. I promise you, none of them do it justice. The place had been well-maintained and held within its bookshelves and hardwood floors a classic charm that you might find on one of those home network shows if it hadn't been covered in a thin layer of dust. Its privacy and relative close proximity to a big city, less than two hours south of Omaha, you know, would have made it some rich hipster couple's dream, right? It was clean, rustic, homey. In short, it was a house for someone else. So I decided to cut and run. I already had a lot of money, so I was going to clean up the garage, get rid of all of Grandpa's weird books and shit, sell the whole thing, and bleed dearly departed Granddad of every bit of money I could. Mm, I reasoned that he wouldn't care. He had already given me a fat bank account and all of his land, right? <laughs> anyway, that I was going to get my ass out of this stupid town and have a shit ton more money than what I had gone in with. And thanks to my inheritance, I had gone in with a shit ton. Perfect plan, right? My first step was to call a cleaning team from Omaha for the apartment slash garage. I got one of those professional groups who cleaned up after suicides, wore hazmat suits, and came in with soap guns ablazing. They came, they saw, they cleaned. I paid them with less than a pittance of my inheritance, and they left. Six days later, the apartment smelled again. After an angry phone call or two, they came back, they cleaned again, and went on their way. After another six days, the smell returned. They refused to come back, gave me a complete refund. I wondered if they had spoken with some of the townsfolk, but I moved on. Worst case scenario, I'd raise the garage. If I couldn't clean it, I could destroy it. It was at this time that I started going through my grandfather's things in earnest. A lot of it I didn't understand. There were old books that I could sell to collectors in Omaha, a few in languages I didn't think existed, some relics that looked like they belonged in a museum instead of on a farmhouse shelf in the middle of the Nebraska woods, and some other odds and ends that were, at the very least, abnormal, like medallions and what could have been Native American runes. I cataloged late into the night more than once, and all the while I felt I was being watched, studied even. Sometimes the house would creak or groan. I wrote it all off. I shouldn't have. As I was going through all Grandpa's stuff one morning, planning my escape, calling realtors and all that, my doorbell rang. It sounded like a child's attempt at music and scared me nearly to death. It was actually the first time someone had needed to use the doorbell since I moved in. I approached the door, nervous, because I thought whoever would voluntarily make that sound for another person to hear must have had ill intentions. Part of me wondered how I had never heard the doorbell before. Then I remembered no one had used it since I'd been here. 
even the cleaning crew had just pulled up and honked their horn every time they had approached. I suppose I should have recognized how weird that was at the time. Anyway, when I opened the door, the priest from Immaculate Heart, Father Jasper Cambry, stood at the entrance, smiling in the early morning sun. An old bent man with a shock of white hair and wrinkles digging into his wrinkles. He should not have exuded power, but he did. I think it was the eyes. They were dark, like they had seen things, things I couldn't handle. He reached out his claw of a hand, a smile on his thin, dry lips. You must be Nathaniel Waite. Uh, Nathan, I replied, reaching out to take his cold hand in my own. And your father, Cambry? He nodded. You've been to my church. It wasn't a question. I nodded. I was looking for some help cleaning. I shrugged, sheepish. Back then, every time I was in close quarters with a religious man, I sort of folded in on myself. Religion was something my mom had derided my whole life. The mix of respect society at large told me to give men of the cloth and the disdain my mother gave them always had an ill effect upon me. I'm sure you understand. The smell in the garage isn't going anywhere, no matter how clean it is. That's where the babies are born. Their smell is contemptible. You'll need to find a nanny. How did you... Wait, what are you talking about? I need a... He raised an old bushy white eyebrow and stopped my question before it could come to completion. Boy, I know everything about this place. Yes, well... I trailed off because I had no idea how to respond to that. Finally, after a shocked silence that walked through the house as though it was the last guest who refused to leave the party, it dawned on me what to ask Cambray. What brings you out here, father? He gently shoved me aside with his cane. Please call me Jasper. You aren't in my flock. You have no need to use honorifics. Okay, sure. Jasper, how can I help you? I rolled my eyes, believing I was about to hear a long and sordid tale about my endangered soul or some other bullshit. He ignored me and walked through the vestibule toward one of the sitting rooms as though he'd been there a thousand times. He meandered, clumping on a cane like it was his third leg with every step and his head swung from side to side. He reminded me of the Uru from The Dark Crystal. That movie was before your time, but if I know my sister, you've seen it. Anyway, there was a somber wisdom about him. He stopped at the room with all the books. What is your plan for the library? He pointed his cane and waved it over the room like a wizard. The library? 
I asked stupidly. He offered an indulgent, quiet laugh. <laughs> the books, son. You need to read them. I'm taking them to Omaha. I already talked to a bookseller there. She wants to see them for herself before she'll buy them, and she can't come down here. That is a bad idea. These books must stay here. You must read them. Um, okay. I wasn't sure how he wanted me to respond. I think it's time for you to leave. Let's sit. He found his way to his sitting room as though I hadn't just politely told him to get out. The room was filled with junk I was going to throw away, a scattering of old pots and pans, things of little value. Doing some redecorating? I'm throwing all this out. He nodded. Mm, that is fine. Oh, so you're okay with that? He nodded. You're going to need new plates and pots and pans when you live here. Things that are your own. Obviously, your grandfather wasn't one to keep up with such things as this. He picked up one of the rustier pots and smiled, some memory taking him to a happier time. He wasn't one to keep up on communicating with his successor either, which brings us here. Oh, you knew Vincent. He nodded. I knew him well. He was one of my best friends. What? Why aren't you dealing with all this then? Why didn't you come see me when I got here? I can't deal with this. Only a Howard can control Wormhouse. I'm a wait. You have your Howard blood pumping through your veins. What? He sighed deeply and grabbed me with his eyes. <sighs> Boy, when was the last time you had an... Uh, an indulgence? What? Drugs, son. Drink. When did you last imbibe? I opened my mouth to answer that it was earlier that morning when I'd woken up and lit a cigarette, but I found I couldn't. It hadn't been that morning. I hadn't had anything to drink, smoke, or otherwise since the first week. In fact, that first twelve-pack I'd bought sat unopened in the refrigerator, and there was an unopened pack of cigarettes on the kitchen counter. That's what I thought. You don't need it anymore. The worms are enough. What, what are you talking about? You've fallen into something much larger than you know. I didn't see him move, but there was a letter in his hand now, and he wanted me to take it. He took a deep breath. This is not how I wanted to do this. I wanted you more prepared, but I made a promise to your grandfather. What? I don't understand. Your grandfather didn't want you to take over until you absolutely had to. Take over? Read this. And stay. 
The letter shook in his hand. I would have come sooner, but your grandfather wanted me to wait. He wanted me to observe. I'm not sure he entirely trusted you were up to this task. Frankly, I don't think he wanted you to be. If I determined you weren't, I was to, well, remove you from the situation, and we were to, well, let's not discuss our other options for Wormwood House. What? Not to worry, my boy. I think you are up to the task. Furthermore, I don't think I have it in me to do what would have to be done if you were not up to it. What are you talking about? Only a madman asks the same question and expects a different answer. I guess at that moment I was mad. What are you talking about? He looked across the hall at the room full of books. Do not get rid of those books. Read them. He stood now and reached out his hand again. In fact, not just the books. If you don't know what it is, do not get rid of it. All of the artifacts are here for a reason. Some hold defensive magic. Others are catalysts for spells to repel the things from below. They must stay. He waved his cane around as if indicating the whole house. All of it. I wish you good luck. And I'm available at all times of day or night if you need assistance. He handed me a card with his name and number on it. There was a title below his name, Friend of Humanity. Why does this whole town hate my grandpa? I'm not sure why I said it. Nothing was making any sense, and maybe my brain was grasping for what it thought was the easiest question to answer. (laughs) This town has a unique relationship with the owner of Wormwood House. There are some who believe we should destroy it. They are fools who know not the power and purpose of the worms and their caretaker. Since Vincent passed, their voices have grown louder. We will make them see the error of their ways. I blinked. I frowned. I started to say something, but the words died on my tongue. Cambry smiled sadly. Read the letter. Get rid of the toiletries and utensils and get some new ones if you like. They do not matter, boy. (laughs) And I know you have the money now. You're going to need time to come to terms with this letter. I'll be back soon. What is... I stopped since he was already halfway out the room. He clomped down the hall and left on his own while I ripped open that letter. It read... Dearest Nathaniel, you're receiving this letter because the curse of the Wormwood House has fallen to you. For that, I apologize. I kept it away from you as long as I could, longer than I probably should have. 
But you will live a lonely life here on this plot of land outside of Oakview. You will be derided by many who find our acreage to be a bane on the city and all its folks. I wanted to spare you of these things for as long as I could. Sometimes, even with great vigilance, a monster or two slips out. It's those accursed worms and their whims. They are the house, the barn, the land. It is all them. You must always be vigilant of their moods. I imagine at this point they are perturbed by what is going on. Frankly, though, the OQ townspeople deserve a little shake-up. So I'm fine with a few days of perturbed worms, of escaped denizens of below. You are, I'm sure, moving things around, planning on selling, even contemplating ridding yourself of that barn. I'm sorry, but none of those things must be done. You must, in fact, restore Wormwood House to the way it was before you arrived. There is a place for everything, and everything has a place. As long as the worms are happy, you will keep the world safe. It is when they are unhappy that they get agitated and creatures from below escape. They are unhappy with change. They are unhappy with their caretaker leaving them or concerning himself with anything other than them. They are unhappy with family. They are unhappy with children. More than anything, they are unhappy with the laughter of children. In short, they are selfish and unhappy with happiness. This is why your grandmother left me when we were young. She had to take your mother and her siblings away. Cambry, his predecessor Jericho, and my aunt tried to convince us our plans were foolish. But when your grandmother and I were first married, our naivete and hope got the better of us. We thought we could make this work with the family. We were wrong. This is why I kept you all away. The worms of Wormwood need silence. They need a caretaker. They need someone alone who will watch them, keep them calm, and make sure they do not open up the rift to the dark place, to below. When last I spoke with your mother, she told me that you were alone, that she was sure you were the one, though she hated this. For the sake of all mankind, I hope this holds true, for you must be alone from now until the end of your days. For that, I apologize. And Cambry has been watching you, I know it. That is his job. If you are reading this letter, that means that you are at Wormwood and he has decided you can do it. If you are reading this letter, it also means I was unable to properly prepare you for this. I must have died far more suddenly than I anticipated. In my love for you, in my desire for you to have a normal life, I waited too long to reveal the truth. For that and for so much else, I am sorry. A conglomerate of religious organizations, the Friends of Humanity, provides me with a stipend that is more than enough. In fact, while your grandmother was alive, most of it went to her. They will do the same for you. They also provided me with Cambry, 
He watches, he assists, he teaches. He makes sure you stay safe and alive until it is not possible. But I'm sure he will soon have a replacement, as I do not see him living much longer than me. Sincerely, your grandfather. I stood looking at the walls. I blinked and thought I saw monstrous worms that looked like a dingy rainbow of color crawling there, swarming even. Their appearance was accompanied by a strange, sloppy sound like a spoon stirring through thick soup. For some reason, I reached out and touched it, waiting to feel their writhing, slimy bodies. Instead, it was a hard wall. I stumbled back and let the letter fall. I grabbed my car keys. I shouldn't have left after that, but I did. My mom in Omaha was the only one I thought would be able to help. She was not. When I approached her about this, confused, scared, and full of disbelief, Mom was full of tears and anger. Suddenly, everything made sense. She had been trying to marry me off for as long as I could remember, trying to get me to have kids, trying to get me to have a reason not to take over where my grandfather had left off. She didn't want this for me. But she couldn't help it. I, like my grandfather before me, was born for this. And if I hadn't been, the entire world would be part of below, as the denizens of that terrible place moved up yet another level of reality. We fought about the lies, we fought about the truths. Why not one of you? Why skip a generation? I asked, drinking a beer for the first time in weeks. It was your grandpa. He didn't want... He didn't want one of his children. Oh no, such as children's children. Cool. I stood, slamming the beer. I threw the empty can in the sink and made to leave. I was determined to run. She sat at the kitchen table pleading with me one last time. Why didn't you just marry Sammy? If you had, Cambry would have come up with something else. I didn't love her, Mom. But if you would have had children, this never would have happened. I don't understand. Your dad had children, and... His case was unique. There was no one to replace him. There's no one to replace me. <sighs> She sighed, looking out the window at her grandchildren playing in the yard. There's me, then. I'll go. What? Your grandfather is dead. Your aunt and uncle can't do it. I should be doing this, not you. You can't do this, Mom. You're too old and... Then who? One of your nieces? Your nephew? Will this Cambry man come for one of them? Their children? Your sister's children? Do you even... Do you believe this? She looked away. 
It was so long ago, but I can remember you and your sisters and cousins playing in her backyard at the time. It was sunny out, early fall, everything seemed right everywhere else but in that room with my mom. I believe enough. I followed her eyes. You can't do it, Mom. Someone has to. No. Part of me knew she had been building to this. You know, part of me knew this would be my catalyst. Stop, Mom. I'll do it. Nathan, no! Tears ran down her cheeks. You know enough to know that I have to. But there is another way. Is there? And what is it? <laughs> Why did I change my mind? Why did I come running back to the place that terrified me? I'm not sure. Maybe the fear underlying Jasper's cold words. Maybe the fear in my mom's. Or maybe it was seeing her, hearing her say she was willing to sacrifice her life for this. I knew I had to do what my grandfather had done. I had to sacrifice for the people I loved. I rushed back to Wormwood House and found myself entering a nightmare. With Grandpa dead and me messing with the house and then leaving, the worms had grown more agitated than they had in a long while, and monsters were slipping through. Some had been spotted in the woods outside of town. One, I was later told, had even slimed its way to Main Street and attacked a family. Cambry had killed it with his bare hands. The townsfolk had known where it came from. They were out at Wormwood House with pitchforks and torches. Literally, they were going to do something about this. They were going to burn down the perceived source of all their troubles. It would have been laughable if it hadn't actually been happening. Father Cambry was there as well, trying to scream sense into them and failing miserably. The calm weather of Omaha had given way to a terrible storm. To this day, I'm sure the worms had something to do with it. The sky raged, monstrous clouds roiling, rain rushed down to fight the torches, and lightning broke the sky as thunder mumbled like an angry beast behind it all. I pulled my little hatchback to a stop in the muddy lane where everyone was gathered and leapt from the front seat. What's going on? The gas station attendant stepped from the crowd. We're destroying this place. We'll destroy you too if you try to stop us. Enough is enough. You can't destroy it. It protects us. You of all people shouldn't believe the Indian crap about this place. It's evil and it should be burned to the ground. Like a witch? Cambry's words were cool where they had been panicked a moment before. Yes. Lightning shot across the sky and lit up the scene. Before us, the house appeared to glow and morph into a collection of giant worms. 
wrapping themselves around the building or becoming the building or something in between, pulsating, humming with terrible power and releasing a wet stench that was something akin to death, but worse. See, it's evil. It is evil. The whole place is evil, and this boy's family keeps it. They keep the evil in. They keep the worms happy. If they're happy, they keep the gates closed. We've had this discussion before. Cambry took a breath, rain beating against him, against me, against us all. If they're not happy, the gate opens. He paused, confident everyone was listening. They have been made severely unhappy once before. What happened? A civilization fell. There is nothing left to remember it by. Nothing, save a few relics in this house. He turned to the crowd. Is that what you want? More lightning shot across the sky. We all saw the worms there. Someone fainted. Everyone screamed. A terrible shock washed over all. This boy's grandfather kept the worms happy for years. Yes, a few demons from below escaped in that time, but he always subdued them. He pointed skyward. This plan comes from a higher plane of existence than our own. We're not meant to understand it. We are meant to follow it. But Father, so many have escaped. This boy will capture or kill them. He's a boy. He's a Howard. It's his job. As if on cue, a monster that might have been a man or might have been a many-tentacled beast bounded from the trees on the edge of the road. Hulking and smothered in slime, the thing moved inexplicably fast and had the gas station attendant in its grip before people were aware enough to scream. Cambry grabbed my arm and thrust a knife in my hand. Strange runes on the hilt glowed and gave off a calming heat that flowed through my body. Kill it! What? No, I can't. I said. Okay, I cried. Cambry grinned. You can, Vincent! My grandfather's name. He shoved me in the back so that I stumbled forward within a few paces of the monster. In his tentacles, the gas station attendant writhed. I thought I could hear his bones crunch. The thing looked at me with two large black eyes, its lipless mouth open to reveal row upon row of teeth. I wanted to run, wanted to escape, but I could not. The heat from the knife flowed through my body and gave me some kind of preternatural drive. I took a step forward. Wait, actually. I threw the knife. It found its mark between the monster's eyes. 
It dropped the gas station attendant. It crumbled into a pile of goo on the ground before us. And a moment later, the crowd, watching in stunned silence, a worm emerged from the ground and wrapped itself around the goo before burrowing itself back in the ground. Whoa, what the hell? Cambry came up and placed a hand on my shoulder. The crowd inexplicably dispersed while a strange humming emanated from the house. Get some sleep. This has happened before and this will happen again. People forget easily, but this will stay in their minds for a good long while. I'll be back tomorrow to teach. A sudden realization hit me. Did you... Did you plan this whole thing? You needed to get the people on board again. So what, sacrifice their safety? Jesus, Cambry. Walking away, Cambry turned to offer me a sly smile. It reminded me more of the Skeksis than the Uru. And he followed the crowd as it vanished down the lane. I'll see you tomorrow. Get some sleep. I didn't sleep. I went into the house and spent that night cleaning up the place, calming the worms, and becoming their caretaker in earnest. The next day, Father Cambry showed up and led me down a hall to a room secreted behind a bookshelf. In it were ageless weapons. You must use these to slay the things from below that have been released in the past few days. The magic they possess will work for you and you alone now. Sighing, I took the closest instrument of destruction, an axe. Lead the way. He reached for another axe. I haven't had to use those weapons often in the 25 years I've been here. But it is good to know that they are there, that I know how to use them if I need to. I have no friends, no family, and no fun. Nevertheless, I do my job, and I will do it until the day I die. But I'd like to prepare my successor better than my grandpa prepared me so they are not thrown into the worm house, ignorant as I was. Meet me at the corner restaurant in Oakview on June 6th at 6 p.m. Your training will begin then. Sincerely, your uncle.
As the fires wane and embers glow, our stories cease as shadows grow. The night is long and darkness deep. Remain with us. Embrace no sleep. The No Sleep Podcast is presented by Creative Reason Media. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mikulski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member who is under our spell. This audio production is copyright 2021 and 2022 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.